Our, Bi- our Bible reading today is going to be from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 14, which you can find in the church Bibles on pages 498 and 499. So once again, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 14, pages 498 and 499 in the church Bibles. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated to to Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 42nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib has done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipments of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and the Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Amen. Now please follow the screens for a video. So thanks to uh, Josh Pryor for all the graphics that he's done for uh, the whole of this series. And hopefully that just gave you a little reminder of the journey that we've been on over the last uh, 10 weeks or so as we've gone through this incredible story of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
It was about uh, five years ago that Alison and I were uh, visiting our daughter, Anna, who was uh, in Lebanon working with Syrian refugees. I've got loads of memories from that time, but here on the screen is one that uh, particularly sticks in my mind. It was uh, a picture we saw often on the hill just behind the house where Anna was living. And uh, as you walk by, it was clear that there was somebody there that had this incredible vision to build a big house in a very prominent location. You can't quite get it from this picture, but actually it's right on top of the ridge. You look one way and you're looking to the sea like that. You look the other way and you're looking to the mountains. Absolutely stunning location and an incredible vision. But when we saw it, Only the basement of this huge house had actually got finished. It was actually functioning as a temporary home for a few of the Syrian families that Anna was visiting. But there, up on the ridge, all of the time, the imposing pillars of this great home that someone had planned stood. It was like an awkward reminder of a great project that someone had started, but that had never been finished. And it seems to me that if you read the whole of Nehemiah 13, the last book, the last chapter in the book, you have a very similar thing going on. It's like this awkward taste of reality about a great project that seemed to go so well, but in the end was never completed. The road to renewal seems to be a dead end when we get to Nehemiah 13. We saw right from the beginning of our exploration of this story that although there are a couple of big building projects in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah, this was always about much more than just building the temple and rebuilding the walls. The renewal that we were about was a renewal not just of some buildings, but of a community, of a people, the people of God. And that was really the journey that they were on. And despite a few challenges, to be honest, look back through the story and it's gone remarkably well. The walls have been repaired, the temple has been built, the people have come together, they've said all the right things, praying the right prayers, committing themselves to God and to following him. It seems fantastic. And then Nehemiah 13, right at the end. And the road just peters out. The story ends not with a bang, but with a kind of whimper of failure and pain. And yet we're going to find that actually precisely in that failure lie the seeds of Nehemiah's most profound hope. Let's begin back in chapter 10, chapters 10 to 12, which are about the best intentions. Matthew introduced us to chapter 10 last weekend, where we saw that after confessing uh, all of their failures as a nation, in cha- in, uh, that was in chapter 9, then on in chapter 10, there's this, this huge moment where the people come together, not just to say sorry for the past, but to make commitments for the future. They're going to be committed to God and his ways. That was the intention and uh, we, we saw it was a commitment to purity, uh, which was to do with not getting involved in mixed marriages from uh, the unbelieving nations around. It was a commitment to godly priorities to do with the Sabbath and protecting a day every week for rest and for worship and reflection. 
And then it was a commitment to treasure the holy presence of God among his people by looking after the temple. The chapter finishes at the end, I think it's verse 39, with we will not neglect the house of our God, the place of the presence of God among his people. Purity, priority, and treasuring the presence of God. Those were the commitments. And We'll think a bit later on about what those commitments might mean for us. They might seem a bit strange to us looking back. But within their understanding at the time, it all made perfect sense. These really were the best intentions. And they did all that they could to show just how much they meant it. Uh, chapter 9, verse 38, he says, In all of this, uh, this is the people say, in, all, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Can you feel? That's like, we're on board. We're really, really committed to this. And then chapter 10 and verse 29 All those now join their fellow Israelites with the nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord. That's heavy duty commitment, isn't it? We're on board, they're saying. Make no mistake. And it wasn't just fine words. Read on through chapters 11 and 12, and you'll see that they take some key steps to get it all up and running, just as they've said. So chapter 11, they repopulate the city of Jerusalem and all its surrounding towns. And then the second half of chapter 11 and on into verse 12, they get everything in place for the temple to function. They have priests ready. They have people to look after the buildings so they don't fall down again. They have musicians ready to to lead the worship and gatekeepers and servants. Everything in place. They're not going to neglect the house of God. Everything is ready to go. Amazing. And then at the end of chapter, middle way through chapter 12, there's this massive celebration. The walls are all complete. The temple is complete. So they get these two great choirs together. And one of them sets off around the walls in this direction. The other sets off around the walls in the other direction. And then they come together in the temple when they've walked all the way around the walls for this massive celebration and praise. And it was very full on. Chapter 12 and verses 42 and 3. Partway through, so I avoid the difficult names. The choirs sang under the direction of some fellow or another, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Can you feel the bigness of this moment? The celebration, absolutely full on. I have to say, I love times like that. Exuberant worship that, that is so full on that it can't just be kept within the confines of a church building, but, but spills out, echoing into the streets of the city and beyond. That's what was going on. Wonderful. guess it's a little bit like one of those moments where perhaps... A couple have been married a long time and things haven't been going so well and after a rocky period they get some help and they sort things out and and then they have this big 
party with everybody listening in. They renew their vows and they celebrate their love and they commit themselves to one another. It's like they're saying to everyone, look, we're in. We're not going to be controlled by the past anymore. We're together for the future. And everybody celebrates and cheers. That's the feel of this moment. A turbulent time in the history of Israel, but now this great coming together and this great determination to live with God and for him. If only Nehemiah's story could have finished there. It would have just been perfect, wouldn't it? Perfect, happy ending. And the message would have been so clear, wouldn't it? Do what he did, copy him, and then everything will be okay for you as well. But that wasn't the story, and that isn't the message because of chapter 13 which is perhaps the worst anticlimax in history. Just to continue that marriage renewal illustration. They had the big party. Now it's 12 months on and the old problems are resurfacing and the husband has just been caught in a compromising situation with his ex. And it seems like for all the fine words and the good intentions, nothing really had changed. That's Nehemiah 13. It's a little bit tricky to piece some of the chronology together, but essentially, after Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for about 12 years and overseen the project, he has to go back to the, uh, the Persian king who had sent him in the first place. He's probably there for a few years, as far as we can tell. But when he gets back, which is Nehemiah 13, he finds that despite all those good intentions, despite all those solemn vows, despite that great moment of celebration and renewal, things have gone downhill again. Do you remember those three commitments that the people made to God? To purity in their marriages, to the priority of rest and worship, and then to the commitment of treasuring God's presence in the temple. All solemnly vowed before God. Three commitments. But if you read the whole of Nehemiah 13, you'll quickly see there are three sections, and each one ends with Nehemiah praying that God will remember him. Huh? Three commitments, three sections, Nehemiah 13. You've probably guessed it. Every one of those three core commitments has been broken. Rooms in the temple have now been rented out to unbelievers from the surrounding nations. And the promised gifts to give the temple going, keep the temple going, haven't materialized. The temple is neglected again. And on the Sabbath days, when they promised they would rest and give time for God and for worship and reflection, instead the streets of Jerusalem are bustling with traders. The Sabbath has been broken. And the Jewish men have taken unbelieving wives from the pagan nations and had families and children with them. Unfaithfulness in marriage. The three commitments shattered in just a few years. Nehemiah sets to action. He's that kind of guy, it seems. And, and with the tools he's got available to him, he does everything he can to sort the problem out. He tells them pretty severely to go put things right. And he's really strong. And he does some things that probably we wouldn't feel was right to do to people um, in the process. But he was a man of his time. But it's 
It's hard to believe it's going to work out any different this time around, isn't it? Because, I mean, after all, they just made all those promises. They said it was a solemn vow. They'd had a massive party to celebrate and say they were going to be the faithful people of God. And now he's telling them they really ought to do the same thing again, having kind of messed up again. And that mess up had come after just centuries of mess up anyway. Why, why believe that the final reforms in chapter 13 are going to work? There's no reason really to think they will. And that's the end of Nehemiah's story. <laughs> Can you feel the anticlimax? Can you feel the disappointments? But you know, it's even worse than that. Because this isn't just the end of Nehemiah's story. This is really the end of the whole story of what we call the Old Testament. So you could argue that this is quite literally the worst anticlimax in history. Thousands of years of the story of the people of God petering out to nothing in failure and pain. It does seem that the road to renewal is a dead end. It's going nowhere. So depressing, isn't it? Now, of course, in one sense, it's not depressing. It's kind of encouraging, perhaps, because we all know about the tension between good intentions and poor performance. Tell me about it. I know about that. I bet you do as well. But, but is that all that Nehemiah is saying? Is there, is there no more profound hope here than just, well, we all kind of aim high, but we never kind of hit it, do we? I mean, that's good to know, but, but isn't there something more? Well, thankfully, there is something more. And the reason there's something more is because though perhaps, well, I don't know how much Nehemiah understood it, but the truth was that Christmas was coming, just as it is now. By the way, don't you love what uh, Mark Jones and the team have done on the building outside? Have you seen it at night? Fantastic. Nice Christmas tree. Big shout out to that team for decorating our building so well. Christmas is coming. But what has that got to do with Nehemiah 13? Well, we've had this massive anticlimax. And finally, Nehemiah 13, as we reflect through the longer sweep of the Bible story, we're pointed towards the better saviour. You see... Nehemiah's tools for renewal and for change were two, essentially. It was law and effort. It's all he had. Tell them the rules and tell them to try harder. I'm not criticizing him. He did his best. It's all he had, law and effort. But Christmas tells us that there is a better way. And that because there's a better way, the road to renewal is not a dead end. Just flip over into the New Testament, Romans 8, 3 and 4. It's going to come up on the screen. Let me just talk you through these words very quickly. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. Now, flesh here isn't our body. It's our distorted, sinful nature. But how can you see what Paul is saying there? Law and effort don't deliver. That's Nehemiah's story as well. But, continuing on in Romans, what the law was powerless to do, God did. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the Christmas story, Jesus becoming a human being. Why? Well, to be a sin offering. That is to die on the cross for us, for all the mess and mistakes in our lives. Well, what was the achievement? Read on. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, by paying the penalty for all the mess and failure that is ground into our lives as human beings, Jesus broke its power over us. So yes, now we do make mistakes. Still, I make mistakes. We sin. But if our trust is in Jesus, we actually don't have to. Because sin isn't in charge anymore. It's been condemned at the cross, broken in its power. Why? For what purpose? We'll read on. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met, or perhaps better translated, might be fulfilled in us who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. To put it really simply, the cross has dealt with our past failure and broken the power of sin. And the Holy Spirit, the powerful presence of God, now living in us when we trust in Jesus, comes inside to slowly change our hearts and our desires so that we begin to be able to make the good choices that enable us to flourish and to grow. The past dealt with and a path of transformation set out ahead as we walk in the Spirit of God. That is the message of Christmas. That is the message of the New Testament. And that is what breaks through the dead ends in the road to renewal. So that by looking to Jesus and living in the Spirit, our lives can be changed. We can live lives of increasing purity, which has nothing to do with race excuse me, race or ethnicity, but it's about being joined to people who spur us on rather than pull us down in our Christian lives. We can pursue lives where we make godly choices, godly priorities, which isn't about a whole list of things that we don't do on a Sunday, but it is about living in a regular rhythm of rest and worship, which enables us every week to keep putting God back at the center again. So important for us. And we are able to live lives which treasure the presence of God, walking in the Holy Spirit every day and making a big priority of worship with other Christians where we encounter him together. So as we finish our journey with Nehemiah, can I just ask you, has it actually changed you? Has it changed me? Have we ourselves actually walked into Nehemiah chapter 9 to face the stuff that's wrong, to name it and bring it to God and confess it? Our bad attitudes, our selfishness, our pride, our critical and destructive spirits, the impurity of our hearts. Have we looked it in the eye, taken it to the cross of Jesus and left it behind? And have we thrown our lives wide open to the Holy Spirit, slowing down to hear his still small voice in our hearts so that holy love and holy desires and holy ambitions soak into our hearts and our lives begin to change. If we don't take those steps, then quite frankly, the road to renewal 
will be nothing more than a vaguely interesting sermon series. And can I just say, that isn't the point of sermons, to be vaguely interesting. The point of sermons is to help us encounter God in his word, which means responding to what we hear. But if we do respond, if we take our failures to the cross and open our lives to the spirit and resolve to live lives which nurture an intimacy with God in the Holy Spirit, We can step into a future that is not defined by the past, but by the good, life-giving, Jesus-centered plans that God has for us and that the Spirit desires to birth in our hearts.